A lot of you uh, have not met our four daughters. They grew up in this church. This church was founded 19 years ago. You know, they were founding members of Lion and Lamb. They were the original worship team. This is one of my daughters, Adrian. While we are equally pleased, proud, glad to brag on any of our daughters or their husbands and families, I'm, I'm going to make a point of Adrian this morning to make a point going into the text that we're in. Uh, Adrian was a precocious little girl. Um, amazingly so, didn't know a stranger, you know, always loved to wear hats, grew up uh, sharp intellectually, went to Washburn University, uh, graduated with honors there in English, went to France for the best part of a year to get a minor in French as well. She loved literature and languages. Took a year off and she was accepted into one of the most prestigious English departments in the world in Durham, England. And so she was getting ready to make her way to England for an English major And along the way, she ended up in Southern California to do an internship for the C.S. Lewis Institute. And while there, she met a dashing young fellow named Roy Tinker. And suddenly life got complicated. We told all of our girls that we think it's likely that God's going to marry. You're going to get married. And we think you need to be ready for that. The flip side is, we don't know that for sure. And so we think you need to be prepared to make a living. For yourself, if you don't get married, that you can stand on your own two feet financially, that you can provide for yourself. Or, should you find yourself married later, and for one reason or another, your husband can't financially provide for your family, it'd be a good thing if you had a skill set or profession or something on which the family could rely. So, all of our daughters married later in life, sort of the trend of the age. That was true for most of them in their 30s and late 20s before they married. So, each one of them was pursuing a degree and or a profession. That's what Adrian was doing. So her plan at the time was to get her master's degree on the way to her PhD in English so that she could teach at the university level. And that was for a twofold reason. She wanted to teach what she loved, which was literature and language. She also wanted to be in a position of influence with other students for Christ. So the plans go along swimmingly, and then Roy comes in and complicates everything. And so they courted long distance and they Skyped and Roy flew to England a couple of times and he proposed on a windswept, rainy northeast English coast and wasn't that romantic. And, and all, of, all of Adrian's life changed. She finished her degree at Durham, but everything else changed. No PhD, she got an MRS instead. She traded the halls of academia for two bedrooms and a, and a bathroom, one bathroom in Redlands, California. Instead of Chaucer and Dunn, it's Dr. Seuss and Golden Readers. And instead of grading papers, it's changing diapers. Wow, what a choice, right? What a a contrast. Now, my serious question to you this morning is this. Did my daughter trade down in marrying and leaving a profession and academia to be a homemaker? Did she trade down? Did Adrian become less of a person, less valuable person? How about this phrase? Did she become a less empowered woman in trading a professional life, which she would have enjoyed, for the role, the much more considered subservient role of a homemaker? What did Adrian's choice of role and function say about her personhood 
or her value, if anything. And I'm framing it this way because we're in a text, guys, this morning. By the way, this is Adrian above the Mediterranean Sea. You know, and she's in France and she's traveling the world and having a good time without us. There she is with, with the, the world at her feet, so to speak. Things are a little different today. We're in a text this morning that's become a contentious one. And I know for many of you here this morning it's not. But for some of us, we're not sure how to respond to what the Apostle Paul says this morning in his letter to Timothy, who is representing Paul and God's interest at the church in Ephesus. And he's talking about the roles of men and women in the household of faith. Now historically, we've, and even contemporarily, there's no problem knowing what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 about men and women and roles within the church. The challenge that's come up in the last 50 or 60 years here, even in evangelical circles, is we know what it says, now we're not sure what it means. Historically, there was no problem with that. But in the last 50 or 60 years, that's become problematic. We know what it says, but what does it mean? For this reason, the lens of feminism has been informing our culture for decades now, and it's been informing the evangelical church as well. It's been informing us, the household of faith here, so that we're not sure what it means functionally by role to be male and female in God's family and in God's house, the church. There's great confusion over this for many, even if you don't share that same confusion. By feminism here also, I mean one thing and not another. What I don't mean by feminism is this, that women are somehow any less valuable to be esteemed, to be respected than any man. I don't mean that women shouldn't be paid the same for doing the same work. That's not what I'm saying. The view of feminism that men and women are essentially interchangeable, that there's no necessary responsibility or God-given role or difference based on sex, that's the view of feminism I'm challenging this morning and that Paul simply doesn't agree with and that I would argue God's mandates on us as His children don't comply with. But there's great confusion in the world that we live in today. So we're in the series God's House. We're working our way through 1 Timothy. And remember the setting and the context for this message. In chapter 3, verse 15, Paul told Timothy, I hope to come and see you soon in Ephesus. But in case I'm delayed, I'm writing to tell you how to behave, how to comport yourself in the household of faith, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So in God's household, in the household of faith, the church, Paul says to Timothy and through Timothy to the church then and to the church today, that this is the way you live in the household of faith. And this morning he's saying three primary things related to the role of women in the church. He says, one, the father's daughters, and, I'm, and I hope to speak through the whole morning in the context of the language of family relationships because that's what we've got here. That God the father's daughters are to dress in a godly way that primarily means externally with modesty, but it also, at least as importantly, means spiritually with humble good works, with a life of service to others. That's the first thing. God's daughters don't teach and don't lead God's sons. And by this I don't mean boys, I mean men. And last, the father's daughters are called usually to be homemakers. And we'll qualify this because it needs to be, excuse me, needs to be in a number of ways. So, 
In Ephesians 5, the letter to the Ephesians was written a few years before this letter to Timothy was. And in that, if you remember in chapter 5, Paul provides this view of marriage from God that's what we call a complementary relationship. That the roles of the husband and the wife are distinct and are meant to be distinct so that they are complementary to each other. That was in the family. That in the marriage, husbands were meant to provide humble, Christ-like servant leadership to their wives. Wives were called to provide submissive support to their husbands. And Paul was clear that that complementary relationship was meant to reflect the reality of the relationship Jesus has with His bride, the church. That was Ephesians 5. Today in 1 Timothy 2, what you see is that same example of different roles that are meant to complement each other is now more broadly applied to the church family. Now it's not just the nuclear family, now it's the church family broadly. Um, Because this is a contentious uh, passage, guys, there's all kinds of things we won't be able to get to this morning my, my hope this morning is to defend what the passage clearly says, that it means what it says, and to explain why this is not and was never intended to be demeaning to women. We're going to hit the high points, a little bit of the applications, but there's all kinds of inference and clarifications we won't be able to get to this morning. If you have questions about this, be glad to visit with you about any of those. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-15. through 15. We'll start at verse 8. Uh, pause briefly and then go through the rest. So, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Paul wrote, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And just briefly to stop on this, we ended on this verse last time talking about the theme of prayer. Verse 1 and verse 8 both said the same thing. Pray. But isn't this interesting? God's addressing His sons by faith and adoption. And He says when you gather as a church... I want you to pray, but this is the deal, guys. When you come together to pray, I want you to lift holy hands without wrath and dissension, without anger and quarreling. And what do you think that implies about the men in the household of faith in Ephesus? Because this is what we call an occasional letter. Paul is speaking to the issues in the church at the time. The occasion has brought about the letter. This means guys in the household of faith are gathering together and they're praying, but they are doing so while they're at odds with each other. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, listen to what David wrote with this imagery. This is a rich biblical imagery of lifting holy hands. He wrote, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's where the temple or the tabernacle will. Who can go up and visit God? Who can stand in His holy place? And guys, the church today is the holy place of God. Who can come into God's holy place today? David says this in part, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And that's exactly the inference Paul is making here. That when God's sons come together in the household of faith to pray, their hearts are meant to be clean and at peace with each other, and they lift their empty hands in testimony that there's nothing in my hands. My hands are clean. There's no blood. There's no stain on them. I'm at peace with my brothers in the household of faith. And I lift my hands in an outward display of an inward reality. So the guys in the household of faith in Ephesus, they're at odds with each other. Paul says, no good. Don't come and pray to God like that. Be at peace with each other, then raise holy hands. 
to the text specific that will will be planted in this morning, verse 9, likewise, he says, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So we'll work through these three main points. And then the last main application. The first thing here is, God's daughters should, Paul says, should dress themselves modestly. Look at verse 9. Adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls, or costly attire. What do you think that infers about the women in the household of faith in Ephesus? That they're competing with each other on the external by how well-dressed they can be with, with the most uh, extensive curly hairdos, with the most expensive jewelry, with the current fashion. They're competing with each other for a fashion statement. Now in their day, much more so than in ours, in fact, if you want a comparison of this, it's not a perfect comparison by any means, but if you went to most Muslim countries today, the way a woman dressed would be a clear communication to the world around her. She's a submissive woman and belongs to a household. Her head is covered or her face is covered or she's covered in the way that culture understands means respectability or she's not. Well, something like that was true in Paul's day as well, much more so than in ours. In Paul's day, if a woman wore a stola, it was more like a robe. There was more cloth. It left less to the imagination. A woman could, in contrast to that, wear a toga. It was looser. There was less fabric. It was more revealing. And Paul's engendering on the daughters of faith in God's household of faith to dress in a way that expressed modesty and faithfulness to God, that they looked like a daughter of God based on their outward appearance. So, uh, I have a ring on my finger. And this represents, people that see me would understand that this communicates something clearly that Mike is taken. My wife jokes with this about me, you keep that ring on your finger. You know, you're taken, you belong to me, you're, this isn't an option. If you saw me flirting with young ladies while you see a ring on my finger, you'd think something's amiss. He's communicating one thing with this ring, but he appears to be communicating something else in the way he's talking. Well, that's part of what's going on with the ladies in Ephesus. They're part of God's household by faith, but the way they're dressing does not express that. They're saying one thing, but they're communicating something else by the way they dress. So Paul here says that women should be modestly attired so that their testimony, their words, and the way they dressed both adorned the Gospel. If you remember last week in verses 1-7 through in this same chapter, Paul said that pray for kings and those in authority that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness. And that wasn't so that we could put our feet up and rest and relax, 
But it's so that we would adorn the Gospel broadly, that we'd be respectable, that we'd be hardworking, good citizens. That's the same thought today. Paul has this primary concern that the Gospel is affirmed by the way the sons and the daughters behave themselves, not just what they say, not just where they go on the first day of the week. In the sexually saturated culture of the day, it was important that women dress in a way that showed whose household they belonged to and that the Gospel commended the appropriate virtues of simplicity and fidelity. Guys, somewhat like this culture today, even though it was a sexually saturated culture on one hand, the Greco-Roman world still esteemed virtue broadly. They esteemed faithfulness and courage and honoring your family. This was a big deal. And so a woman could give more or, or less credibility to that claim of affirming the household of God by the way she dressed. This still remained a big deal. The same holds true for us today. When daughters of faith wear clothing that's particularly low up here, or high down here, or tight through any of this, or sheer, the outward expression is not consistent with the claim of faith and being a daughter of God in the household of faith. That's Paul's point. Now, having said that, this does not mean... Let me be clear. I don't think most of the gals in this church are are confused on this. This does not mean that Christian women may not dress in a way that's considered attractive. So I don't know if you guys have had this uh, experience or not. Uh, Kathy and I were at the Nelson Atkins a few years ago and we're in one of the galleries appreciating the fine art. and, And a woman came in and behind her trailed two or three little girls and and they were all dressed in long, loose denim dresses. We looked at each other knowingly and we said, Christian homeschoolers. <laughs> this is not hard. We know that. We know who they are. We don't have to ask. Are you a Christian and do you homeschool? Because denim equals godliness, right? <laughs> long denim dresses equals godliness. Well, anyone here in denim, by the way? Sorry, ladies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does denim equal godliness? Well, not necessarily, right? Because this is both. It's the external way we dress, ladies, and that what that com- communicates. But it does not mean you can't dress in an attractive way. The, the real thought here, here is both modesty, that's important, but also it's the attitude of the heart. Am I competing with my sisters in the faith? One-upsmanship. It's all about me. Or is it really about God my Father and Christ my Savior? And I'm dressing in a way to affirm the reality of the claims of the Gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. Where are we going with our outward dress and what we're communicating in that? So what you see here, a couple things. One is that the sons of God tend to be sinfully tempted to be at odds with each other even when they come to the household of faith to pray. And that likewise, women in the household of faith May, tempt, may be tempted to dress and compete with each other in an external way. And God is saying no to both of those. God says don't compete with each other, but excel in peace and godliness. So modesty, God's daughter should dress modestly. The second thing is this, and this is a prohibition, and this is where the, the, um, the frictions, uh, the sparks start to fly related to this passage specifically. Second, Paul says, God's daughters don't. This is verses 12 uh, through 14. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 
Verse 13, why? Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So listen to the two things that are prohibited here by Paul in the household of faith. The first is, God's daughters don't teach men in God's household. God's daughters don't take the role, the leadership role, of teaching doctrine in the household of faith. And second, God's daughters don't lead or exercise authority over God's sons in His household. Now, Paul gives two reasons for this. And by the way, again, there's no quibbling about what the text says. It's really about what the text means where the challenges come in today. The two reasons Paul gives here are not reasons locked in time, either in Paul's day or in ours. The first reason Paul gives for this is leadership or what's called headship. Adam was formed first in creation, was given the position of leadership in the husband and wife roles. That's the first reason Paul gives. And second, Eve was deceived in a way that Adam wasn't. That it appears that Paul is saying that women may be tempted to be deceived in a way men aren't. Now please understand, Paul is not letting Adam or men off the hook. When you read the the temptation account in Genesis 3, it's quite clear. It says, and the man was with her. Adam absolutely failed in his leadership role in the temptation account. And when God comes into the garden and calls them out, He does not start with Eve. He starts with Adam. And when you read in the book of Romans about mankind's sin, it's not tied to Eve, it's tied to Adam because he was the head and the leader. And the fall starts with Adam, not with Eve. So those are the two reasons. This would be where you could spend a lot of time and we don't have time to spend a lot of time here this morning, okay? I will mention, if you read in 1 Corinthians 11-14, through 14, this section of Corinthians is a singular section. And it's about the church gathered together. And these chapters, 11 and 14, prove uh, confusing for lots of people. If you read commentaries on this, you'll see it's argued all over the place for this reason. In chapter 11, women in the meeting of the church are praying and prophesying. They're praying and pro- They're speaking in church. They're praying and prophesying. You get to chapter 14 and it says, let the women be silent in the churches. And then you say, well, what's the issue? What's going on here? Must they be silent or can they pray or prophesy? My understanding is this. In chapter 11, in the meeting of the church, women were speaking, they were praying, and they were prophesying along with men. The issue there was, Paul said, do so with your head covered, which again, at their time, communicated something very clearly to the culture by an external head covering or lack of it. In chapter 14, though, after the prophets had spoken, when the church sat in judgment on what that word was and how it was to be implemented or not, women in that context were silent because they weren't providing leadership in what that looked like going forward. So they pray and prophesy in chapter 11. They remain silent when the church was sitting in judgment on what had just been offered, what that would require of the church or not. So, in the household of faith, what you've got is a different in role and in function between God's daughters and God's sons. Men provide humble, Christ-like servant leadership. Women provide humble, Christ-like submissive support. Now friends, if you went to churches today that hold what's called the complementary model, that God intends a difference in role and function between men and women, you could see a wide, wide variation of what that looks like. On one end, you could go to a church today on a Sunday morning and you would hear a woman 
teaching and preaching as I am here this morning. And the rationale for that would be the pastor of the church or the elders of the church are sitting there. They're the authority and the woman is teaching under their authority. And I reject that out of hand. I think it's a total, it totally misses what Paul's after. The flip side though is this. You could go to another church that says we believe in the complementary roles of men and women and women are forbidden from speaking. Period. And I say they've missed it too. That is not what this text says. Lion and Lamb says it this way. Men and women, this is from our statement of belief, while equal in worth before God, are created with different and complementary roles. Men are to exercise loving leadership in the home and church, based in part on the text we're in this morning, and women supportive help. So the rubber meets the road when you start saying, what does that look like? How do you parse that out in the life of the church? So let me just give you our church as an example. And we're not saying we have this thing perfected, okay? But we're aiming for the broad parameters we understand God's laid down here. So, women do lead and do provide primary support basically to children in Lion and Lamb Church. So, if you go down on any given Sunday in primary grade Sunday schools, you'll see almost all, not entirely, but almost all women from 7th grade down to nursery teaching and leading the children. That's where you'll see them. You'll also see them in teaching roles in women's groups and in prayer groups getting together. But in mixed groups, men provide teaching and leadership in mixed groups in Lion and Lamb from high school ages and up. That's how you'll see this fleshed out. Men provide home groups, uh, leadership in home groups as well. Again, mixed groups. Uh, leaders in the church body, meaning elders and deacons, generally are men only. And that applies in worship leaders also are men as well. Now, I want to be quick to say, because this is sort of where this falls out, you start saying, does the prohibition on the role of women, what's that based on? We won't, we won't develop this because there's not time, but it's based on headship and the order of creation. And it's also based on this thing that Paul says, this tendency to deception. It is not based, guys, on value, on intelligence, on abilities. That is not the issue at all. So for instance, going back to the creation, Eve, before the fall, Eve was everything and only what God wanted her to be. There was no deficiency, right? No downside to Eve in creation. And in fact, I like to think of it this way, Eve was the last thing God made. Eve was the pinnacle of all creation. Eve was the finest thing God ever made. Eve was the icing on the cake. Creation was not complete and mankind, Adam, was not complete until Eve arrived on the scene. Women were the finest thing God ever made. Eve was the, the, crowning, the crowning achievement of God's creation was feminine. It was female. This is not degradation of the feminine in any way. But also think of this. Uh, sometimes uh, Christians, evangelicals with a feminist bent, will say they will point to the Old Testament female leaders to, to say God raises up female leaders. My response to that is this. You do see female leaders in the Old Testament, and this is inevitably where you see them. You see them when men have thrown their role of leadership away. And the key one everybody goes to is the, is the judge Deborah. And, and Deborah is an example of feminine strength and wisdom and maturity. Absolutely. There's, she judged Israel well. 
But the men around her were cowards and they were unwilling to go to battle with the enemy unless she went with them. And she said, guys, this is to your disgrace. You are not being the men God's called you to be. You'll see prophetesses, Holda in the Old Testament. You'll see the prophetess Anna in Luke's Gospel in the New Testament. This isn't about the ability of women to articulate, to be intelligent, to lead. It has nothing to do with that. And last, if you think of Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31 is an example of what's considered in the Old Testament an ideal woman. What's this gal doing? She's doing just about everything. The guy is sitting in the gate, feet up, you know, taking it easy, right? What's she doing? Well, she's rising early, she's feeding her household, she's dying the fabric, she's buying a field, she's running a business, she's an entrepreneur. This is the ideal woman of faith in the Old Testament. No downside there. Let me give you some examples currently, or fairly recently, of some secular female leaders. And again, what Paul's talking about applies in the household of faith. It does not this does not and was never intended to apply equally or broadly in the larger culture. Uh, Marissa Myers uh, on the left there, Marissa Myers was uh, hired by Yahoo to save them because she is one sharp cookie. This gal's made millions. I can't remember if it was Google or where she came from, but she has one sharp cookie. She was the person hired by Yahoo to save them. Yahoo may be unsavable. They're, they're debating that today. But she was hired because of her capability in the tech market. She is one very pro proficient woman. By the way, she's a, a woman having children and raising a family. Also, I don't know how you do that. The middle woman is Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher even today is often reviled in Great Britain. But she was the prime minister there. And when Reagan was president in the United States, Thatcher was prime minister of England. And it was in part because of the resolve of those two key conservative leaders that the Soviet Union gave up on the arms race and imploded. Margaret Thatcher saved Great Britain during the riots that were going on in the cities in her time. Again, that's in part why she's reviled today. But she was a strong leader in a nation that needed a strong leader. And the last, do you know who the last one is? The black and white photo? Golda Meir, born in the Soviet Union, raised in the United States, Prime Minister of Israel from 1969 to 1974. Golda Meir led Israel through the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And check this out. Her general, her key general said, look, we're going to be invaded. The Syrians are, they're, they're rousing all the troops on our border on the Golan Heights. They're going to attack. We need to strike preemptively. And Golda Meir said, we can't afford to strike preemptively. If we do, the West will not come to our aid. So later, when she's talking to the Secretary of State, he says, you're right. Had you acted preemptively, we would not have helped you. She overruled a key general, and it was her wisdom that in part allowed the West to aid Israel when they needed it. Check this out too. It's a great story. Hers is a great life. She used to debate with the United States representatives at the dining room table to get fighter jets and military warfare. That was occurring in her dining room. At her diner, it didn't, it didn't keep her at all from operating as a very shrewd prime minister over the nation of Israel. So, so, the prohibition on women all to this point has nothing to do with innate ability, with intelligence, with the ability to see problems and solve them. It has nothing to do with that at all. The focus here is on wives and mothers and roles in the church, not to the business world. It doesn't apply equally in that setting. 
So the different and complementary nature of sexes here is not meant to exalt one at the expense of the other any more than the complementary roles within the Trinity make any member of the Trinity less God than the others. And we'll close on that here in just a minute. How are we doing? Uh, the last thing is this. So God's daughters should, God's daughters shouldn't, and God's daughters usually do. Verse 15 uh, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. And this, this in, sounds very demeaning to a lot of women today. And first, let me clear. Saved here does not mean sins are forgiven in eternal life because I bore children. You can't get there, right? What it means is, saved is, the woman who's giving herself to serve her husband and children at home is saved from the temptations to the kind of lifestyle that will denigrate the Gospel, not affirm it. If she's busy, if she's working in the home, a position she's uniquely qualified for in ways that men are not, she is saved from the temptations that lead to trouble and those occasions when the Gospel is not affirmed, but it's torn down by the behavior of those who are otherwise in the household of faith. Listen to the way Paul talks about this in chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, just turn a page or two. This is in 1 Timothy 5. And Paul brings this up again in the context of young widows. The church was was laboring over what do we do? What's the role of the household of faith for widows? Women who have lost their husbands. And in that context, Paul says, well, some of those widows we're going to support. But we're not going to support as a church provide the financial assistance to young widows. And this is what he says in that context. Younger widows will otherwise learn to be idlers. They'll go about from house to house as gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and listen, give the adversary no occasion for slander. Think of it this way. Kathy and I were driving down the street just last week. School was out. I see a group of young boys walking down the street. Do you know what I'm thinking right away? And I say to Kathy, there's trouble right there. There's four young boys with time on their hands walking down the street. Trouble is coming. That's sort of what Paul's saying here. Women should be engaged in positive, gospel-affirming roles and service because anybody with excess time on their hands ends up being tempted to do things they otherwise wouldn't or shouldn't do. That's the thought that all of us sons and daughters of God should be engaged positively in ways that affirm the Gospel. You see the same thing in Titus 2, verses 3-5. through In that context, similar theme, Paul says it this way, Older women likewise should be reverent in behavior, and this is all for the same reason, by the way, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They should teach what is good, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, Why? That the Word of God may not be reviled. Because even back in that day, Paul said, if we live in a way that doesn't affirm the Gospel, it brings discredit to the household of faith. And that was Paul's primary concern. Live within the roles and the functions God's called you to so that you affirm the reality and the power of the Gospel. Dale Alquist in his book Common Sense 101, a a book about the life of G.K. Chesterton, says this, The place where babies are born, where men die, where the daily drama of mortal life is acted, is not an office or shop or a bureau. It is something much smaller in size, yet much larger in scope. 
women, wives, and mothers serving children at home, they are affecting literally future generations. This is not a small thing, a small call. Now, are there exceptions to this? Are there exceptions to women who will find their role as a homemaker? And the answer is yes. There's lots of them. And there's lots of them here in Lion and Lamb Church, right? So, some women regarding marital status and children, there are daughters of God who will remain single most or all of their life. Daughters of God in faith who will not be married or will not be married for much of their life. There are families where wives won't be able to conceive, bear, and raise children for one reason or another. Her physical challenges, his physical challenges might not happen. The lack of marriage or bearing children and raising a family doesn't prevent these women from adorning the Gospel by living humbly and respectably in the world. They can still do that and are called to that. For most women, as with my daughters, all four ended up getting married, but quite a bit later than they thought they would or hoped to. For those years, were they somehow out of the will of God? Could they not adorn the Gospel as young ladies who aren't married, don't have a husband, don't have children? Not a problem. It's just that for most women, that's where they'll find their key calling is in the family. Also, briefly, the family of God is a family. And it's made of families. And we want to make sure, whether it's from a teaching venue or it's the things that we say to each other, the way we communicate with each other, no one is more or less valuable in the household of faith. And, and I hope single believers in Lion Lamb feel as accepted and as fully members of the household of faith and fully members of Lion Lamb Church as anybody that's married or married with kids or that couples without children don't feel like they're second-class citizens, that we're all in this together, that we are brothers and sisters in the faith, we are meant to be here for each other. And the church, the household of God, Lion and Lamb or broadly, is less if we don't have the input of all of us. So this isn't about, this is the ideal, you've got to shoot for it. And if you missed it, man, you really missed it. Some women aren't going to be married. Some women aren't going to have children and raise children in their household. That's not going to be the way they glorify God. Second, regarding the financial provision for the family. The, the wife or the mother as financial provider instead of or along with homemaker. You'll see oftentimes women supporting families while their husbands are finishing a career or an education. Law school at Washburn University being one of the ones that comes readily to mind. You'll see women supporting families when husbands are not able to. Guys, we have all of this in Lion and Lamb Church. You'll have women supporting families due to other factors as well. Is that okay? Are they second? Have they blown it too? Are they failing to glorify God if that's the role they find themselves in? And again, we would say, no. Kathy and I have been uh, careful to tell families that have been in this situation um, it's not that you can't or shouldn't do that. In some situations, you'll find that's exactly what you're called to and that's what you must do. What happens though is there are additional stresses and strains in these roles where the woman must be the financial breadwinner and the guy becomes Mr. Mom. Life is challenging enough to begin with. This, this scenario ends up providing additional challenges. So it's not that that might not be the way God calls daughters or sons to glorify Him, it's just that it has its own set of challenges in addition to the normal ones. Feminism told women you can have it all and you can do it all. And guys, that's a lie. No one can have it all. 
And no one can do it all. So some women are going to be breadwinners and homemakers. It's just additional strains. It's not that you can't or will not be called to do that. It's not the norm. So, uh, since the 1960s, the sexual revolution, the feminist movement, our culture has tended to minimize the importance and the value of women as homemakers. Guys, I think, based on surveys, I think this trend is reversing. I don't think it's in full reversal yet, but I do believe culturally it is in, it's reversing, it started to. Is, uh, is my daughter Adrienne, is she less herself because she's herving, uh, serving husband and children? Is she less valuable as a person because she voluntarily set aside the career? Does Adrian find lesser glory in choosing to set aside things she could do in order to do what she understands became God's call on her life? So, put this in context on Palm Sunday. This is an odd Palm Sunday message, I grant you. But we bring in Palm Sunday here. So, this is Palm Sunday. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus... God in flesh rode into Jerusalem on a little tiny donkey to the acclaim of the crowds of Jerusalem. I would have been a little embarrassed, I confess. I'm a tall guy, a little tiny donkey. My feet would have been dragging and I'm thinking, give me a big proud horse ride. I'd feel better with that. But the whole thing with the incarnation is God the Son's humility, isn't it? Philippians 2. The Son stepped down, stepped down, stepped down, stepped down. It's all about His willing humility to take on the role and function of a Savior. That's the incarnation. That's part of the message of Palm Sunday. Jesus died for proud men and proud women who refused His right to tell them what His plan and goals for their lives were, as well as the countless other ways all of us sin. Jesus died for the proud sins of the world and all the other sins as well. Now think of this related to the Trinity The Father did not put on flesh. The Father, if we can say it this way, remained in heaven. While Jesus is cleaning the soil from our dirty diapers, so to speak, morally, the Father's not there doing that. He's ensconced in the glories of heaven. The Holy Spirit did not put on flesh either. Right? So while Jesus is preparing the spiritual table for us eternally, the Holy Spirit is not the one doing that. The Son is the one doing that. So put this in perspective. Was Jesus less God than the Father and the Spirit? Because He functionally took on the role of the servant of servants. Was Jesus less valuable than the Father and the Spirit because He voluntarily lowered Himself to become the servant of all? Was Jesus less smart? Less glorious? Less noble? because of His humble servant role in the Incarnation. And to all of those, we of course say, no. And this is the thing. This is where this settles out. Just as Jesus shows us what godly servant leadership looks like for men in God's house, He also shows us what submission and its glory looks like for women in God's house. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is the model for both leadership and for submissive support. He's the model for both. The Lion and Lamb Statement of Belief says it this way, God is a trinity of persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is eternally existent. And key for us this morning is this, they are diverse in operation. They have different roles and different functions, but equal in essence and deity. And friends, what is true for the trinity is true for our humanity. 
And for God to make us in His image, Genesis 1 and 2, means male and female. And to be male or female doesn't mean one is elevated above the other any more than the members of the Trinity elevate one above the other. Role and function do not equal value. On this Palm Sunday, it's important to remember that role does not define value. Function does not define worth. God calls both His sons and daughters to adorn the Gospel by humbly serving in the roles He's called each to, just as Jesus did, both in humble servant leadership and in humble servant support. Lord Jesus, thanks for incarnating and taking the role of humility and suffering and servanthood. Thanks for showing us what both noble leadership looks like and what godly submissive help looks like. Lord Jesus, would You help us to both admire and esteem You and hold You up as our model. Father, thanks for incarnating the Son so that we can see what both leadership and submission look like. In Jesus' name. Amen.